Don Davis, um, uh, biochemist, did amazing work looking at what he calls the, the dilution effect, which is um, the fact that as we have, have um, essentially bred all the uh, fruits and vegetables and animals that we grow to be more productive, they've lost their nutrition. So fruits and vegetables have less micronutrients than they used to. Um, so you're not getting the same nutrition, but I would say even more importantly, you're not getting the same flavor. So if, let's say you set out to have this kind of a diet, it's going to be much harder to sustain because it's just not satisfying to eat. Um, I'm a great fan of Italian cuisine, and, and I respect so much the fact that Italians respect flavor, that they think the, the quality of the ingredients is so important, and they prize simple dishes that have very few but very good ingredients, and it works. I mean, when you taste food that's made from good ingredients simply with love, food that's designed to amplify the flavor of nature and not impose a man-made flavor, it really does, I mean, it speaks to your heart. It's just incredibly, it's so good. And so many people have never really experienced that because we've just all gotten so used to, you know, the kind of industrialized version. You just heard from author and journalist Mark Schatzker talking about the disappearance of both nutrients and flavor from our food over the past few generations really as the result of agricultural breeding practices, which usually focus on yield, uniformity, and shelf life above all else. This interview was featured heavily in the Real Organic Symposium's fourth session on nutrition, which was universally everybody's favorite from what we heard. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to thank you for subscribing to our podcast and ask you to visit our website, realorganicproject.org, to become one of our Thousand Real fans. Our movement is quickly growing, and we hope you'll support our Thousand Real Organic Certified Farmers by becoming a real fan, and to help you find real food on your table and in your local stores. So now let's get back to the conversation between my co-director, Dave Chapman, and author of The Dorito Effect, the surprising new truth about food and flavor. Mark Schatzker. Welcome to the Real Organic Podcast. Uh, My guest today is Mark Schatzker. Mark is the author of The Dorito Effect, The Surprising New Truth About Food and Flavor, and another book called Steak, One Man's Search for the World's Tastiest Piece of Beef. Hi, Mark. How you doing? (laughs) I haven't seen you since uh, we had dinner together at the Shelburne Inn after Nourish Vermont, David Hollenbeck's uh, really wonderful conference. Yeah, that was a great conference. It it was. And And a great dinner. You get it was a great dinner, and you gave a great talk. Um, and I, I had not read your book before that, and he invited me to introduce you. And I thought, well, I better read the guy's book. And so I did, and I, I, I will tell everybody that it is one of the best books I've ever read. It was so well written and so well researched. Um, you know, most books, people really could get away with just putting out the first two or three chapters in the last chapter, and you'd really have the book. But that was not the case with the Dorito effect. Well, that's very that, kind of you. Um, it, it's yeah. also one of the best books I've ever written, but I've only written two, so. <laughs> I hear you're writing a third. I am, yeah. Right? It's in the kind of the late stages of uh, production, so. And, kind of, and, and what is that about? Well, it's, uh, you know, picking up where the Dorito effect left off, really looking at how a lot of the changes we've made in food in terms of literally how it tastes, the signals that food feeds our brain, exactly how that's, that's making things go wrong, how it's messing up our metabolism, how it's uh, making people gain weight. Yeah. It's really great. drilling down on some of the latest neuroscience in, in terms of how our brain understands food. Yeah, that's, that's great. Uh, another two people who I interviewed, you might know Dave Montgomery and Anne Beclay, mm-hmm. um, who wrote The Hidden Half of Nature together, and they're writing a book on basically connecting soil and nu- and nutrition. Yeah, yeah, and, that's a great uh, topic. And it's yes. uh, it's certainly not what most people think about. They just think of the food in their plate and they don't think about where it came from. So, and there's an yeah. amazing story behind that. Yeah. So let's let's dive into the Dorito effect. Um, how did how did you come to that? What 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 started that journey? Uh, you know, it started with steak. Uh, steak was my first book, and it's just like it sounds. One man's search for the world's tastiest piece of beef. Uh, sounds like fun. It was fun. I traveled all over the world eating steak, 
But you start to ask interesting questions like, you know, why does food taste good? Um, I learned interesting things. I'd go to visit a ranch and there'd be some pregnant uh, cows in one field and some steers in another and the steers are fattening. And the, you know, the rancher would tell me, well, you know, the, the cows over in that field, they're, they're feeding on clover because they have a higher protein requirement because they're pregnant. And you'd think, well, how does a cow know that there's protein in clover? How does, does a cow even know what clover is? And you start to realize that we think of animals as being incredibly stupid, these, these dumb beasts in a field just munching away. And when you actually drill down on the science of grazing, it's fascinating. Um, animals have an intelligence that I think we've lost, that they know what they need to eat. Um, the other thing I noticed during the steak book is that, um, you know, as much as we rave about steak houses and dry-aged beef and this and that, pretty much the entire world is eating incredibly mediocre beef. Uh, beef has lost its flavor. It doesn't taste the way it used to. Uh, you know, I talk about this with old timers. They say, you, you know, you got that right. Uh, and they remember fondly the amazing beef of their youth, but it's nothing like that today. And that's because we've gotten incredibly good at producing uh, incredible volumes of beef at the lowest price possible. And we've paid for that, both in terms of the nutrient density of the beef, but also the flavor. So that was telling me something pretty interesting because I found that the best tasting beef, the best steak, was a really great grass-fed steak, which was also the most nutrient-dense, uh, the best for the planet, and also the best for the cow. So it's really not what I expected because we think of beef as being this incredibly indulgent, destructive food. It destroys the planet, it destroys you, and there's this idea that what is pleasurable is bad for you. And here I'm getting the signal that no, actually, we've got that totally backwards. The steak that was bringing me the greatest joy was also the best pretty much for everybody. So that prompted me to look more deeply. Uh, it's, not, it's not a story that's exclusive to steak. It's true of all the food that we, we create and that we eat. Uh, the last you know, 50 to 100 years have seen just an incredible expansion in the volume of food that we produce. And it's very important. We have less farmland than we used to, and our population has exploded. So on the one hand, that's good because we have more mouths to feed. But the one thing we don't think about is how have we paid for that? And we've paid for it in terms of flavor and also nutrition, that the, the food we eat is kind of like a pale imitation of what it used to be. And I think, you know, some of us realize this most acutely when you taste something like an heirloom tomato or a great strawberry and it just hits you, it just floors you, you're blown away by it. And that's how food is supposed to taste. And it's telling us something, there's a reason it tastes good. Yeah, I, I am often thinking that we're like the frog in the pot that is slowly heating up because we 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 don't know what's changed but but if you step back and look at it you realize that the velocity of change of our food system is you know warp 5 i mean we are we are things are changing so quickly that's what the dorito effect uh, laid out so clearly yes and, and the reason i called it the dorito effect is because it is such a crisp encapsulation of what's happened to food that that literally the corn substrate from which the chip is made um we've had incredible uh you know boost in terms of corn yield but it, it tastes less like corn than if you taste heirloom corn but we've also dusted it with flavorings we've we've made it taste like something that it isn't we tend to think this is okay because we sort of think flavor is this unimportant thing that the brain doesn't know what i need you know what i need is like protein and vitamins and what the heck does my brain know? Uh, turns out it's not that simple. And the Dorito really encapsulates what's happened to food. We just kind of have this high calorie delivery vehicle for flavors that, that we have imposed. Well, this is really a very recent development. Up until about 60 or 70 years ago, this flavor industry, which is worth billions today, was just a, a tiny little industry that did things like, like syrups and extracts. Um, and flavor, came from nature. You know, if you wanted to taste a great apple, you had to get a great apple. If you wanted to taste a great piece of fried chicken, you had to get a great chicken and you had to know how to cook it. But we've turned that all over its head now. We produce chicken that is devoid of flavor. You know, if you look at the way recipes have changed, it used to be that chicken just needed salt and pepper. Now you brine it and then you have to put a dry rub on it and then you have to blitz it with something after you've cooked it because it just needs so much help. There's so little going on there. Um, and, and it really is astonishing. You know, food sort of looks the way it used to, uh, but it really doesn't taste the way it used to. And we have to work so hard to make it flavorful. So why doesn't a chicken taste the way a chicken used to taste? Uh, because we have, I mean, you know, chicken is probably the most interesting story. We've really altered chicken the most of, of any animal. Uh, part of the reason that chickens, you know, when they have a brood, they have lots of them. So you can really breed for certain traits very quickly. 
but essentially the chickens we eat today are much larger and much, much younger than they used to be. So a chicken in the late 1940s would have been something like 12 to 18 weeks old. Now they're about six or seven weeks old and they weigh more. We've just genetically bred them to just grow extremely quickly. We, we give them a very, you know, a, a feed that's very rich in macronutrients, lots of protein, lots of energy, and they're just protein producing machines. They just get big so quickly. The prices come down. There's literally a chicken in every pot, but it doesn't taste like chicken. I mean, one of the most interesting things that we, we say when something's flavorless that it kind of tastes like chicken. But once upon a time, chicken really did have a distinct and wonderful and incredible flavor. And anyone's ever had the opportunity to eat what I think of as a real chicken, an heirloom chicken, a chicken that reflects its own life, that reflects, you know, the fields where it grew up in and all the little things that it ate, the little critters and the leaves. That is just an amazing experience. And it's not something you get from modern chicken. Something that's being lost now. Uh, uh, absolutely. In, in fact, I, most people, I would say, don't know what chicken tastes like. Right. It's, it's really I, only uh, I, the old timers. I, I made, um, I, I bought one of these chickens and cooked it for my dad. Uh, who was born in the early 30s in Europe, uh, and he said, I haven't tasted a chicken like that since before the war. Wow. Yeah. I read that 99% uh, of the meat, milk, and eggs in America come from CAFOs, from confinement operations. And I, I you know, when I was a kid, th there were no CAFOs. It wasn't that long ago. Yeah. Yeah, it all changed very quickly. And uh, they're, they're essentially, you know, factories. So why did it change, seeing as the food doesn't taste as good? You know, it's a really interesting question because it's not the same in every culture. You don't see as many CAFOs in Europe, for example. Uh, you see things in France, for example, like uh, the poulet de Bresse or the uh, La Belle Rouge chicken, where they have different standards of chicken, where they have to be raised a certain way. Um, we did notice it. If you look, I'm someone who voraciously reads old cookbooks, and you can see that cookbook authors, I think it's uh, Paula Wolford, she has an interesting, um, I think it's her her book on Moroccan cuisine, she talks about if you're, this is in the 60s, she's saying, uh, or 70s, if you're eating a chicken that's been scientifically bred, and she's talking about, even then she noticed that chicken was lacking flavor. Julia Child noticed it in Mastering the Art of French Cooking, that she said modern, modern breeding has done wonders to create plump, cheap chickens, but, you know, they've lost flavor. So people did notice it, but overall it was just a steady drip, drip loss, and we didn't realize why it was happening. I think people thought, well, you know, it's great. Food is cheap. And, and on the one hand, you know, we do have mouths to feed and a lot of people struggle with food affordability. Um, but, you know, North America, I would say more than anywhere, really, we really lost flavor. We, we lost our, our, our awareness of it and our love for it. Okay. So we, we uh, have read that North America has the cheapest food in the history of the world that we all contribute less of our um, annual income to buying food than has ever been true. And it's much cheaper than Europe and much cheaper, cheaper than in America's history too. It's true. And you know, the interesting thing to think about is that, you know, where does that food go? It goes in your mouth and then in your body. And, and if you think about it, it's for some reason we have this fixation with cheap food. But when you think of other things, I, I couldn't even tell you what the cheapest car is. I'm not sure. Um, I don't know anybody who buys the absolute cheapest clothes. If I needed to buy the, the cheapest pair of shoes, I, I wouldn't know where to go. That's not to say I buy really expensive shoes, but I'm not even sure what these things are because there's always the idea of like, well, I want some quality, right? I, I, I want to buy a decent car at the very least. But with food, it's like, no, it's got to be the cheapest. I, I even meet people who are extremely wealthy and they talk about the great deal they get at, on steak at this or that, you know, big box place as though they're, they're really winning. They got a great deal on food. <laughs> okay, so so here's a question. Do we think that it is a great deal? Um, one of the things that you talk about is that the flavor industry is so good at fooling us into thinking that we are eating something different from what we're eating. So if they can take a chicken and dress it up so it tastes like a chicken again, why should we care? Yeah, it's a great question because if, if it's cheaper and it tastes good and it makes, you know, lights up those pleasure centers in my brain, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is why do things have flavor in the first place? Uh, we are um, a culture of nutritionists. We, we think that the experience of food is this kind of fleeting, you know, idiotic thing that we have to push out of our brains. And what really matters is the nutrients. Uh, we get obsessed with these different diet trends. 
Uh, we think we we think we have some understanding of the amount of calories or vitamins in the food that we eat. We have no clue. Uh, it's it's kind of this mass illusion. So you have to ask yourself, why does flavor exist? It's really interesting. If you look at, at your blueprints, your design, your DNA, the thickest chapter in that whole book to make you is on making your food sensing equipment, your nose and your mouth, literally your flavor sensing equipment. That is the thickest chapter. It's a bigger chapter than how to make your eyes, how to make your brain, how to make your sex organs. So from an evolutionary point of view, it must be really, really important for us to have all that DNA devoted to it. So what is it doing? Why is that we put food in our mouth? It, it actually uh, triggers a bigger burst of action in your gray matter than anything else. Well, the answer comes, we can't tell by looking at ourselves. The best, I think the best way to understand this is to look at animals, where, where I initially got this idea from looking at the way cattle behave. Um, and in the book, I spent a lot of time with a scientist by the name of Fred Provenza. Uh, who studied flavor feedback relationships. Um, and he showed very crisply how it works, why we have this sense. And, and it all comes down to this, in a very simple level, the nutrients that we eat, the micronutrients especially, are inert. You can't taste things like, um, you know, the vitamins in food or the minerals. Uh, we have no ability to, to sense them. So the, we had to evolve some way of knowing what was in our food before we ate it. So Fred would do experiments. For example, he would make sheep deficient in phosphorus, which is a necessary mineral. You don't get phosphorus, you die. He would make them deficient, and then he would give them a choice of feeds. Uh, some of these sheep would get a coconut flavor feed, and some would get a maple flavor feed. And that's all it was, was just flavor. But then he kind of, he was, you know, he's smart in the way scientists are. He would inject into their room in either water or phosphorus. So he would pair the needed nutrient with the flavor. The flavor, remember, had nothing to do with it. It was just a pairing. But what he found is that the sheep learned that the flavor of maple equals phosphorus. So when Fred would go and make them phosphorus deficient again, what do they do? They go out looking for maple flavored food because their brain understands that's how I get what I need. Now you might be thinking, well, hold on a second. Maybe sheep just like the flavor of maple. So he switched it up. In another experiment, he had the coconut paired with the phosphorus. And those sheep, when they would become deficient in that needed mineral, would seek out the coconut. So that is why we have this incredibly sensitive sensing equipment that picks up these little chemical cues from food, because that's why we know what's in it. And when food lights up our brains with pleasure, it's telling us something. There's another really good example of this. Um, scientist at the University of uh, Florida named Harry Klee has been studying tomatoes. Um, he's been trying to return flavor to tomatoes. But in order to understand how to get flavor into tomatoes, he had to understand how tomatoes make flavor. And he found that there's about 26 different aromatic compounds in tomatoes that really light, light up the brain. This is what we really love in tomatoes. And what he did is he looked to see how does the tomato make that flavor? Because if I can figure out how it makes the flavor, I can start to manipulate those genetic pathways through breeding. And what he found is that the flavor compounds in tomatoes that we love, that, that you know, really make, make us go, wow, that tastes great, they are all synthesized from essential nutrients in a tomato, from vitamins, from omega-3s. So you can think of the flavor of a tomato as kind of being a chemical projection of what's in the tomato. So when you bite into a tomato and it tastes great, your brain's going, there's good stuff in there, I should be eating more of that. So that, it makes a lot of sense, right? We, you know, evolution, you know, our evolutionary past was a tough time where we had limited time and limited resources to nourish ourselves. And we had to do a good job of it. And that's why we developed the sense. That's why animals have this flavor feedback mechanism. So then you look at something like the flavor industry where we're plucking these chemicals out of nature. And that's what they do. I mean, they go into the rainforest, they go into orchards, they get fruit, they get soup, they do all sorts of things. They analyze the flavor chemicals and then they produce them in factories and start to put them in soups, in chips, in, in literally anything you can imagine. That's why this is a problem because we are creating this sheen of nutrition, but it's a lie because you're not getting what the food is telling you that you're getting. Okay. God, I have so many questions. This is great. Um, so those six, 26 aromatic compounds, would those be considered secondary plant metabolites? Yes. And that's a great word. Secondary. Yes. Yeah, secondary plant metabolites are compounds. And so what's a secondary compound? Um, if you look at the history of botany, 
scientists were trying to understand plants and they were looking for the important things like like the energy and the the lignin the structure of the plant but then there was all these chemicals that plants produced like tens of thousands of them that just seemed to have no purpose at all they just didn't seem to be doing anything so they called them secondary and they had all sorts of weird theories maybe this is like a waste product that the plant just couldn't get rid of they just didn't really know and then they figured out it finally dawned on them that these are produced for strategic reasons so if you look at something like i use the example in the book of a cornfield when when a corn plant is attacked by a particular caterpillar the corn will send out an alarm a chemical alarm it sends out these chemicals and it alerts other corn plants it says hey you better watch out there's bad guys that are trying to eat us but it also sends out a signal to parasitic wasps wasps that lay their eggs inside these caterpillars and, and really eat them from the inside out so the the corn plant is communicating or, or cotton plants do it too lots of plants do this communicating with insects and they do it with these what they call volatile aromatic compounds or secondary compounds compounds that don't really have anything to do with the, the life of the plant it's not energy it's not about reproduction it's about signaling so in nature flavor is communication it's it's how organisms talk to one another it's how information is shared so that that's what flavor is it's it's chemical signals and that's why we have sensors that pick these things up. So <clears throat> I know that you've, you've written that even, even in grass-fed beef, um, there's, a, there's a big range of quality oh, based yeah, on massive. the quality of the, of the soil, the quality of the grass, the quality of the different plant species. I think one of your, the heroes of your first book was Glenn Elzinga, who's one of our Real Organic Project Farmers. Yeah, Glenn and, is, uh, I mean, he's, he's an amazing rancher and he's a dear friend. And, yeah, and just a wonderful guy. I mean, just an inspiring fantastic. person. Yeah. <laughs> we, we all, you know, bow to Glenn. He's really a, a national treasure. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, there's a difference in, in which secondary plant compounds are going to be in the plant and those... The variety, the diversity of those is going to signal to us whether the food is in fact nutritionally dense and nutritionally diverse. Is that, did I get that right? Yeah, I would say that. You know, what, what's really interesting is you can think of the flavor of, of any, you know, kind of natural meat as kind of a biography of that animal. If, if anyone's ever eaten a deer or an antelope that was grazing heavily on sagebrush, like you taste the sage. So, so there's something interesting biologically that there's this little these little gates that open that let certain chemicals into the cell and you can taste them. Um, so the, the flavor of something like good grass-fed beef really is a reflection of the land where it came from. So, you know, in, in the world of wine, they call this terroir, but, but you're, you know, that animal is reflective of its environment. And that's why you'll get different tasting beef uh, from different parts of the country. It's not to say one, you know, people like to say, well, what's the best? And it's really not about that. It's, it's just that there's this beauty in this diversity of flavor that is reflective of the land. Do you think that the reason that we like some food, like we like the the chicken from a hundred years ago or the French chicken better than the, the modern Purdue factory chicken, the reason that tastes better to us is that we co-evolved with those animals and with those ecosystems that they are signaling to us, this is good food for you? Yeah, I, I think, yes, I think so. I think humans have been eating meat for an awfully long time, and I think we need some way of knowing, is this good or not? You, you can't, it doesn't make, it's very inefficient to figure out 40 minutes after you've eaten your meal, was it any good? So, so you need to know in the moment, is this good? Is this worth eating? Um, you can taste, you know, when you taste a piece of fruit, it can be really bland, it can be pretty good, or it can just overwhelm you. And, and it's telling us something about the quality. Yeah. I was at a workshop at uh, a seminar at uh, the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth, and it was on uh, new food technologies. And they were talking about fake meat. And uh, a guy said how they had worked and identified five secondary plant compounds that were very important. These were the ones. And I, I asked a question and it got a lot of votes. So they asked it. And I said, do you think that some of the other and I'll, I'll ask you, how many, how many secondary plant compounds are there? I don't think anybody knows. Uh, it, um, 
it's in the tens, if not hundreds of thousands, maybe millions. It's, it's just an unknown quantity. I, I know in talking to people that research specific fruits, they'll tell you we don't even know what the list is. They just know that it's massive. Uh, it's yeah. interesting because we think of these, you know, frankenfoods as having this long list of ingredients. But actually, when you look at a real food, something that you've plucked off a tree, the, the list goes on, you know, from here to the moon. I mean, it's just incredible, the incredible diversity of chemicals that nature produces. Yeah, yeah. I asked them if they were concerned that any of the missing, you know, 38,995 yeah. secondary plant compounds might be significant for nutritional you know, for us, anti-carcinogen, a million things. And they said, gosh, we never thought of that. All we were looking at was the five secondary plant compounds that we found were critical for making meat flavor. Yeah. And so I thought, you know, that's that's perfect because they, they got really good at making meat flavor, but they really hadn't even considered what was being lost in that transaction. And the same thing happened with tomato flavor. If you look at ketchup flavored potato chips, they captured the flavor of the tomato, but not the nutrition. But here's the other thing is they talk about the flavor. And, and that's a, a total mistake because foods don't have just a single flavor. We can talk about the flavor of an apple, but every single apple you've ever eaten has been a version of apple, but it's always changing. And I think one of the things they don't realize is that when you eat food that always tastes the same, it just gets incredibly boring. And one of the exciting things about eating you know, food from nature is that it's, it's, it changes with the seasons, but it also, like I said, it changes from place to place, but it's just exciting. It, 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 it surprises you and, and that's fun and that's exhilarating. And when it's just sort of this, this flavor, this is how meat tastes, this is how chicken tastes. It's not really true. Uh, real chickens all have a variety of flavors. They're all, they're all kind of in a central zone, but there's not just one flavor. Okay. So going back for a moment, you said, uh, we were talking about the fact that uh, the modern food industry, and it is an industry, we can't call it farming, um, can now make food much uh, less expensively, mm-hmm. and they can make lots of calories, and they can make it taste like whatever they want. And my question again, to continue on that is, why would I care? What's the downside? The, the downside is that your body's being confused on a nutritional level. Uh, it's not, the food isn't as nutrient dense as it used to be. Um, now you can say, well, that's not that big of a deal. It's not, you know, if it's down 20%, you can just have another tomato, another bite of the apple. But I would say the loss of flavor is even more important because the system we had of, of understanding, you know, if you look at that experiment that Fred Provenza did, if there's no longer this relationship between the flavor that these sheep are eating and the nutrient payload that they get, well, what happens? That, that whole system of knowing what to eat breaks down. And when you, look at, um, you know, when you look at how deranged eating has become, the problems we have with obesity, with binge eating, it's as though on some very central level, we don't know how to eat. I know some people will argue we were wired to get fat. I don't think any of that is true. It's only very recently that we've seen this very abrupt and striking change in eating behavior. And that's because I think of what we've done to food that it, it doesn't talk to us the way that it used to. And we're, our brains are literally confused. Okay, so let's, let's talk about that because obesity and, and I would say uh, a host of other related non-communicable diseases that are now the, the diseases that are the main diseases mm-hmm. that our society must cope with. Um, you're suggesting that this is, and, and you're not alone in suggesting that this is a result of our changing diet. Could Absolutely. you talk about that? Well, I want you to think about it this way. Um, you know, we can talk on a very technical level about, you know, molecules and, and uh, our sensory equipment. But just think about it. Just put all that aside for a second and just think about a soft drink. Think of a soft drink your kids might drink or one you remember. Um, we're all nutrient obsessives, right? And we all think, well, the problem is that they're sugary. It's the sugar. Well, I would put it to you this way. If, if you take all the flavoring out of a soft drink, it's just sugary soda water. It doesn't taste very good. I've tried it. It's just, you're like, who would drink this? It's so boring. It is so bland. When you add the flavorings, that's what makes soft drinks, 7-Up, Coke, Pepsi, Dr. Pepper. What makes those unique and what gives them that ability to surprise us and find them delicious is the flavor technology that's gone into them. So on that simple level, this, this, these flavorings that we produce in factories and put wherever we want makes us eat food that we wouldn't eat ordinarily. The Dorito is a great example. The first ever Doritos were just salted tortilla chips, just like the ones you dip in salsa. 
and they flopped. Uh, the complaint was that, that the snack sounds Mexican, but it doesn't taste Mexican. And it's when they made the Dorito taste like a taco that people, it, 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 I mean, think about this. It, it was a snack that people didn't want to eat. It became a snack that people couldn't stop eating. This didn't have to do with the salt, didn't have to do with the carbs, didn't have to do with the fat. It had to do with that magic dusting of flavor chemicals that made people go, wow, that tastes great. Okay, so let's dip into why, let's say that you're, you're kind of a health nut and you say, well, I don't eat Doritos and I don't drink Coke. Mm -hmm. I know that that's junk food. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to go to the store and I'm going to buy real food. And I think that you suggested that good luck. Um, real food isn't quite real anymore either. It's and very you, difficult you know, to, to find food that has not been, you know, tainted by, by this way we have of producing food. Um, uh, people are fond of looking at ingredient panels and often they'll see a term called natural flavors and they think, well, that's great. It's natural. Couldn't possibly be bad for me. And this is one of the greatest, um, you know, the, I can't think of two more misleading words strung together, natural flavor. What, what does it mean? Uh, people think, I don't know what they think. I think they see the word natural and they think it's okay, but I, I don't know if they've actually tried to piece together. But all the word natural means, because they're afraid of artificial, that's terrible, that'll give you cancer, that'll destroy you, give you Alzheimer's, but natural is nourishing and of the earth. All that word refers to is how the chemical was made. So you can have two identical chemicals, two identical flavor compounds. One is made from, let's say, coal tar, and one is, let's say, made from lawn clippings that are uh, distilled and then put in a centrifuge and then, uh, you know, they do something else to it, which is, quote, natural. What you end up with is the same chemical. It's how you made it that determines whether or not it's artificial or natural. That's a very good description of what's happening right now in organic certification when they certify hydroponics. And they're making highly processed fertilizers out of natural materials. And then, you know, they go through hydrolysis or something like that. And you end up with something that is essentially indistinguishable from a chemical fertilizer. Yeah, and I, I, and I, I, this is controversial, but I think of uh, so-called plant-based meat the same way. They, they say it's plant-based, but it's, its plant background has been so totally obliterated, you'd never know. I mean, it's just as plant-based as, well, less so than something a cow ate, I would say. Um, it's been so processed and so removed from its original context that it doesn't have any of the qualities that make a plant a plant anymore. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So if you, if you had started with a wonderful, healthy soybean, there's very little of, of what made that soybean wonderful in that, in that soy Why burger. not just eat soybeans? <laughs> yeah. I think right. they taste good. Yeah. Yeah. So let's go even a little bit deeper on that. Um, let's say I'm such a, such a food uh, extremist that I'm only going to eat things like, you know, potatoes and, and asparagus and carrots in, in order to get my nutrition. You suggested in the Dorito effect that even there, things have changed quite a lot in the last uh, 80 years. And yeah. I, know, I know you referred to Don Davis's research yeah, about that. Yeah, Don Davis, um, uh, biochemist, did amazing work looking at what he calls the, the dilution effect, which is um, the fact that as we have, have um, essentially bred all the uh, fruits and vegetables and animals that we grow to be more productive, they've lost their nutrition. So fruits and vegetables have less micronutrients than they used to. Um, so you're not getting the same nutrition. But I would say even more importantly, you're not getting the same flavor. So if Let's say you set out to have this kind of a diet. It's going to be much harder to sustain because it's just not satisfying to eat. Um, I'm a great fan of Italian cuisine, and, and I respect so much the fact that Italians respect flavor, that they think the, the quality of the ingredients is so important, and they prize simple dishes that have very few but very good ingredients, and it works. I mean, when you taste food that's made from good ingredients simply with love, food that's designed to amplify the flavor of nature and not impose a man-made flavor, it really does, I mean, it speaks to your heart. It's just incredibly, it's so good. And so many people have never really experienced that because we've just all gotten so used to, you know, the kind of industrialized version. Yeah, yeah. And we can't even remember what we've lost. Yeah. Uh, that's what's amazing to me is, you know, you say, well, what should a carrot taste like? How would you know if you've never had one? 
Yeah, that's right. And and when you do have one, it's a striking experience. But but again, you got to go and look for it. Um, the the only thing I would say is there is hope. I think because there have you know, for example, I would, you know, someone who's never tasted a great carrot. There's lots of great carrots in all of our futures. But when people do have that experience, it does speak to them. And I think we see that there are some surprising uh, signs of change. If you look at wine, for example, wine is something where uh, we, don't, we don't just buy the cheapest wine. Maybe we did 60 or 70 years ago, but our, you know, our wine palate has become more sophisticated. That sounds kind of pretentious, but I think we're looking for more of a flavor experience. We're saying, I'm not just buying this to slake my thirst or, or to get hammered. I'm buying this because I want to have a rich, involved experience. I think if you look at cheese, there's a similar story going on. It's, it's, I mean, there's a long way to go, but I think there are some real promising flickers of, of hope. I think in the world of chicken, there's more and more people, you know, realizing, yeah, there is something wrong and we can fix what's, you know, we can fix these mistakes. We can go back or we can go forward to a future that's informed by the past. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, certainly I think Dorito effect was one of the great, mm, clarion calls uh, of the last 10 years to help us see how, how much food is changing right, right before our eyes, but we can barely see it. And uh, once we see it, we have a, the possibility of creating a movement to try and find an alternative. Do you, are, do you, after you wrote that book, did you feel, did you get feedback that was promising to you? Yeah, it's interesting. It didn't... Um... You know, it, of course, when you write a book, you know, you're hoping it's going to be the number one smash bestseller of all time. And of course, it never is. But I'm, you know, every week I'll get a message from someone who tells me how profoundly it's changed the way they understand food. Uh, some people have some real problems with eating. And that, that really gives me a lot of encouragement because that's, that's so important. Um, what's also excited me is the response I've gotten from scientists. Um, because, you know, you're nervous. Uh, you're, you're writing about science. Um, you're worried about getting it wrong because I have such respect for some of these scientists that do work. And when they come to you and say like, wow, your book was amazing. Uh, that makes me feel great. Um, but more than anything, what I want, you know, we have a real puritanical tradition on this continent of being suspicious of pleasure and thinking if it makes me feel good, it must be bad. And I think part of the problem with so many of our attempts to try and fix what's wrong is we think we kind of have to be um, austere stoics that will eat food that it tastes bad, but it's good for me. And people live a miserable life of eating awful food, food that just doesn't bring them joy. And that's not how we were designed to be. Food is, it should bring us joy every day, many times a day. And I think if we can start to understand that and understand that flavor, that nature gave us this ability to sense what's in food and to enjoy it, that those, that's really important. That's the only way you can have a sustainable and healthy relationship with food is if you love it and if it nourishes you. Yeah, yeah. You said uh, just now that some people have trouble with food. <laughs> I thought that was a little bit of an understatement. Um, <laughs> well, you I know, know, a lot of people have trouble with food, right? They now. do, and it's tricky territory because you don't want to be judgmental. Um, yeah. And it can be challenging to talk about it without sounding that way. But some people really have a, a very distorted and alienated experience with food. And, um, you know, I think artificial sweeteners are a really interesting example where a lot of people, some of the science even suggests this is good stuff. You're kind of getting something for free. But then I talk to a lot of dietitians who, who say, you know, the people I work with who have the most fraught, difficult relationships with food are, are people who search for these kind of easy answers. Yeah, yeah. So... How big a how big an issue is obesity for America right now? It is, I would say, our number one public health problem. It's not the number one uh, cause of preventable death. Smoking still is, but it's the number two cause. It is, however, the number one cause of preventable morbidity, which is to say unnecessary disease. It's causing so much unnecessary suffering. It's not a state anyone aspires to, and it's it's getting worse. And it's so interesting because... Um, you know, you look at something like cancer. We've been fighting a war on cancer, and we haven't gotten as far as we'd like, but, but we've made progress. Things are better now than they have been. But if you look at something like obesity, it seems the harder we fight it, the worse things get. It, it's like trying to put out a fire with gasoline. And it really is, our, our relationship with food, I think, is, you know, we're, we're all very obsessed right now with the pandemic for, for very good reason. But if we can set that kind of momentary fixation aside, 
our relationship with what we eat, I think, is our most pressing health problem. Yeah. So there are these, you know, there are these two lines on a graph that um, I look at and I think about. And one is, is the cost of food, which goes down, 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 down. And the other is the cost of our health care, which goes up, 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 up. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think that as a country, we no longer can claim that we have the greatest life expectancy or the best health outcomes. Um, even though we spend more money than any country in the world per capita on health care. So, you know, and people say, well, we can't afford good food. And I go, yeah, but you can afford bad health care. I mean, it, it doesn't quite fit. Could you, could you talk about those two, two lines in the graph? Yeah, no, that's interesting. I hear that a lot. I hear also that processed food is cheap and that's why people eat it. Uh, I'm a parent, I have three kids. Processed food is not cheap. It's the packaged food that kills you at the checkout aisle. Um, if you take your kids to a fast food restaurant, it's like 60 bucks um, for a not very good dinner. If I take $60 and buy food and prepare food, I can make a very, very good dinner with some of these kind of elitist ingredients that people like to turn their nose up at. Um, you can make a much cheaper dinner than that. Um, now, some people say, you know, not everybody has the time to cook. That may be true. There may be some people that are so busy that they don't. But I think, I think a lot of us have an awful lot of spare time. Um, and we just make the decision not to cook because we'd rather spend that time, uh, you know, watching YouTube or, or spending time on Twitter or something like that. But um, it doesn't take that long to cook. It is certainly an investment of time. And you have to learn how to do it, but it's worth doing. And it's, it's, I mean, once you learn how to do it, it's great. I love it. I love cooking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure you read Michael Pollan's book, Cooked, which was a, yeah, a celebration. I, you know, I'm just going to, something here is make a noise. I'm going to make it go away. Yeah, good. So, um, yeah, that's part of our strange changing food landscape is that um, we tend not to cook. We tend not to eat together. I, I, one of the people I interviewed was Alice Waters, and she talked about fast food culture. And, you know, their value, she had a very interesting image for me, which is that when you eat fast food, you're actually digesting the culture of fast food and it affects you. And if you keep eating fast food, you start to um, embody these values of speed, of cheapness, of irreplicability, um, so that, you know, it's always the same. You can get it anywhere. Um, you also, you also often eat it alone. And one of the and interesting alone. things about, you know, the communal aspect of eating is that it's sort of a two-way street. Um, eating really good food alone is like watching a funny movie alone. It just doesn't feel right. It feels like it must be shared. And when you share good food with someone, it, it pays off because it makes the experience of eating the food better, but it also makes your relationship with that person better. So it's... Um, it's more than additive. It really is such a win-win. And it's something that is so easy to lose sight of when you, you know, we think of food as just sort of shoveling fuel in our bodies. I mean, people have created these meal alternatives because they think eating is a waste of time. It, it, to me, it's just so, it's like thinking sex is a waste of time. It's like, no, these are, these are wonderful activities that we were programmed <laughs> to do. And they, they, they give us great pleasure. Yeah, well, and of course, in our culture, food is often also seen as an enemy, not just a waste of time, but as something bad, because it seems to lead us into into corners that we don't want to be in, yeah. you know, in terms of eating a lot of stuff that makes us not feel well, that makes us put on weight that we wish we didn't have, things but the, like that. Think about that. how interesting that is, because we were designed to eat, to nourish ourselves, to exist, and it's caught into this point where it's actually bad for us. I mean, imagine if we were afraid of breathing. It's, it's kind of like that. It, I mean, we've come to accept it, but it is so bizarre and it's so wrong. One of the things that Chris Nichols has talked about is that at this time, we have a lot of people in the world who are simultaneously malnourished and obese. And that's a confusing idea, really. Yeah, it is. I th you know, that's something I'm very interested in. I think, I think what we see happening there is that... Um, the, the brain can seek out more than one thing when it seeks to eat and it can seek calories or it, it can seek other things like micronutrients. And I think what we see in, a, in people with obesity is this strong drive to get calories at the expense of, of all else. So you see that they have uh, 
this warped relationship where they're, they're eating way too many calories, but they're not getting the micronutrients. So like you say, they're overnourished and yet malnourished at the same time. Do you think the body is actually seeking the micronutrients and it just isn't getting them? I think Looking there's for two love things happening. in all the wrong places? Yeah, I think that's happening. I mean, like, like for example, if we screwed up the signaling where, where we're putting this sheen of nutrients in, in these, you know, drinks and food that, that make them seem like they have nutrients when they don't, well, that's a problem. But I think also there's something about the food system that is just turning people into calorie mongers, that they're, that they're just really seeking it out. They're, um, and they struggle with it. It's not... You know, this idea that they've just chosen to eat more and, you know, skinny people have just chosen to eat less. It's not like that. I think these people really struggle with some demons and that, uh, and that they don't have control over their, their impulses to eat. So we, we've talked about obesity, which is so obvious, but um, there are a host of other diseases, um, heart disease, cancer, diabetes, that many people have um, believe that the explosion of our rates are based on our diets. Do you agree with that? I agree with some of it. It's, it's hard to know. Um, you know, they say correlation doesn't equal causation. So I'm not someone who thinks that food can cure everything. But at the same time, I think diet is very important. And we see people, you know, the worse the diet is, the worse the outcome is. So there's clearly some relationship. And to think that there isn't one, I think, is, is wrong. I think of mental illness things like anxiety and depression. I think there's something going on there. Um, these systems are so complex. There, there's such an incredible complexity to the, all these, these chemical and um, you know, neurological relationships in the body that it's, it's really hard to, to find that string of breadcrumbs that says this causes this. But I think we know that people that have really bad diets and fraught relationships with food have some problematic health outcomes. I mean, it's, it's right there. Yeah, in in one of your books, you said uh, part of the problem is human nature. We are all natural reductionists. We always want to find a single cause of this or that problem because then it's easy to come up with a silver bullet solution. And that's what we keep going after is the silver bullet solution that we think there's one food or there's this one supplement I can take that's going to cure everything. That's that's both the cause of all our problems and the solution. And it's just so complex. Uh, we have to think of ourselves as whole creatures that exist within a system. Um, and to look for the one thing and to think you can just cure that one thing with this other one thing is, is simplistic. It sounds great. It's very convincing, but it doesn't work that way. So we need to embrace complexity. I would say so. It's hard to do. Um, it's really nice when the snake oil salesman knocks on the door and says, I know exactly what your problems are. And you take this one little magic pill and it'll go away. Uh, and, and, and we're so excited by it that we often believe it um, and are enthusiastically, we will, you know, we will sing that same gospel, but, but we have to embrace complexity and we have to embrace the fact that we don't always have all the answers, that there's still this great mystery, that nature is so much more complex than we can understand. It's frightening on one level, but it's, it's also exciting because there's still so much that we have to learn. Yeah. Einstein once said something like... Um that the simplicity, this side of complexity, isn't worth a plug nickel. <laughs> and the simplicity on the other side of complexity is priceless. And I think that's what you're talking about here, which is that when we, when we embrace complexity, uh, one of the things that I see is that the people who embrace complexity also embrace a certain level of humility, which is to say, I don't know. I don't understand how this works. It's really complicated. But so I'm going to live in a certain way where I think I'm getting the best outcomes. I, I think that's a really good way of putting it. And I think it takes a lot of courage to say, I don't know. Um, we all want to have a quick, fast answer. But but the truth is, we don't know. Um, and so I think you have to you know go down the path that you have reason to believe is the good path and that will take you to a good place. And I think that's where nature informs us. Nature can be informative. It's been around for an awfully long time. And uh, to think that we can rewrite that book, that, you know, things like my, my sense of flavor are, is useless, I, I think that's where we've gone wrong. And I think, I think our intuition does tell us something. Yeah. So we have a challenge here. Um, we, we now, much more than talking about farming, we talk about the food industry. Even in organic, uh, we now talk about the organic industry. And uh, a, a term that I, 
I have some resentment towards because I don't think that organic was intended to be an industry. And the I bring it up because when we try to imagine how do we change what we see is, is a problematic situation. I, I, I think it's problematic that our food is so nutritionally deficient. And how do we change that? I, it seems to me that the reason it's deficient, and I'm, one of the things I admire about your book is that you're not seeking villains. You know, you talk about, about the guy who invented the Dorito respectfully. And you, you talk about many people who have been clever people, who have imagined different ways of doing things that have led to tremendous profit with some respect, while I think respectfully disagreeing with, with the results. Mm -hmm. So do you agree? I mean, do you agree that we're dealing with, um, I don't know what to call it, a mass hallucination? So this, this situation in which the profit motive is driving us off a cliff? I mean, certainly it can get, you know, it can do that. And it's what I find really frustrating is that sometimes people will come up with a really great alternative. Um, they'll put a lot of effort into, you know, let's let's say creating something that's better. And then it gets bought by someone who, who just ruins it and uses the name and, and all the hard work that went into this great thing. And they just take all that goodness out of it, but just sell it on the name. And that's very frustrating. But I think part of the problem is that we're all seeking these simple solutions. So we want one label that, oh, if I just find that one label, everything's gonna be fine. And I think, um, you know, food's really important uh, and you need, it's not as just as simple as having these simple little labels. You need to be in touch. I'm not saying you have to be best friends with every single farmer in your food shed, that's, that's unreasonable. But you have to have some idea as to where food comes from and, and the knowledge and passion that goes into it. One system I like a lot is what they have in Europe, the, um, the DOC system in, in Italy or the AOC system in France, where they basically say, if you're gonna make a wine here and call it this wine, or you're gonna make this cheese and call it this, you gotta do it a certain way. You either have to use this breed of sheep or this breed of cow. They can only eat this. You gotta make it this way. If you do all that, you can use this label. And then when you, when you buy something with that label, it actually means something. And they're putting up a fence that it says, you know, you can be inside the fence if you do things the way we think is important, but you can't use our name uh, you can't use our hard work and everything we put into to creating this goodness and this beauty just so you can make money the easy way. And I think, I wish we had more things like that. You know, the Japanese prize, what they call brands, but they're just very often um, signifiers of where in Japan a particular kind of beef or an apple came from because they're very proud of their geography. And I think if we had similar things like that, you know, we do with things like um, some, you know, like wine, for example, but I think it can carry over. We could have standards for things like pastured pork or grass-fed beef um, or tomatoes where, you know, I think if somebody really did create a great tasting tomato that you could buy at the supermarket, people would buy it. Um, I know we have that quote technology, but this guy in Florida, Harry Klee, has developed these tomatoes, tomatoes that are abundant. Um, they have a good shelf life. They're disease resistant but they also have this incredible flavor. They're not genetically engineered. He just did this through, you know, good old fashioned plant breeding, which is how we got those heirlooms to begin with. Um, so I think, I think it can be done. I know it can be done. Um, but what we need is to reward the people doing the hard work. You have to spend a little bit more and say, I'm not gonna buy the absolute cheapest tomato. I'm gonna spend a bit more and get a delicious tomato. And you might be surprised at how, you know, maybe you're gonna be throwing out less food because that food is more valuable to you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've been in touch with Harry. I, I haven't gotten to test his, his variety yet, but I will. You know, we grow a variety that has essentially become an heirloom because the breeder stopped breeding it. And, and you know, so we're, we're, we're breeding it ourselves. Um, that's great. And, and, you know, they taste very good and that's why people buy them. Um, so, uh, you know, that's a wonderful thing for us. But, you know, when you talk about the label, of course, that's what the national organic program was meant to be mm -hmm. um it was started i believe with the best of intentions senator Leahy from vermont um you know was one of the co-sponsors of the organic food production act and it was intended just just the way they would say if you want to call it champagne it's got to come from this county or whatever this province yeah. and this was intended they came up with good definitions of organic that the community agrees with the problem is and this is 
not just a government problem, because we see it with private efforts as well, is that once there becomes serious money in it, of course, businesses are going to move in and try to make that money. Yeah. That's what businesses do. So I don't know what to, I, you know, this is, of course, now we're, we're in the process of starting another label. But if, eventually, if we succeed, we'll have the same problem there. Um, and I, I think that what you're doing and what we're doing is the same thing, which is like, we need to educate people. They need to not just say, I, I want the right label. They need to understand why it's important and start to ask more sophisticated questions about the process. And here's the other thing I would say is, and this is why I think flavor is such a big part of that, because if, um, if you're attached to something, let's say it's a tomato or a chicken um, or an apple, because you really love the way it tastes, you don't want anyone to mess with that. Just, and if they do, if they change something you love, you'll get angry and say, I don't want that anymore. So th that's why we, it can't just be about the organic quality, um, its purity, it, it's got to speak to your soul. And, and when people value it that way, I think some of these big businesses, they'll think twice about messing with that because they know one of the really big reasons people are coming back for this is because they love the way it tastes. Well, I'm going to have to tell a somewhat pessimistic story in response to that, oh, no. Mark. <laughs> so we sold for many years to a major chain in, in New England, and we were their organic tomato. And... They loved us. We loved them. We were the best of friends. We had a great relationship. And eventually things started to get a little tense as we got, you know, we were on our fifth buyer for the chain and uh, started talking about price. I said, why are we talking about price? We haven't changed our price in 10 years. And he said, yeah, but we're getting much cheaper organic tomatoes from Mexico. And I said, well, those are hydroponic. And he said, well, yeah, I know. And I said, so they really shouldn't be certified. He said, I don't care. They're certified by the USDA. And I said, yeah, but ours tastes much better. And you know it. He said, yes, they do. We all know you have the best tomatoes. But still, we got to talk about price. And eventually, actually, they dropped us. Um, and I just say this because we had a tremendous reputation. I got very upset phone calls and letters from people. One woman, I, I really love this woman, she, she called me from Cape Cod and she said, why can't I get your tomatoes at this, at this chain anymore? And I said, well, they, we still offer them, but they chose not to buy them. And she said, well, why can't you do something about it? I said, they're buying cheaper hydroponic tomatoes. She goes, I know, they taste terrible. I said, I know, I'm sorry, but there's nothing I can do. And it was so sweet. She, she almost was yelling at me. She said, you must be smarter. You must be smarter. And I thought, yeah, I'm being as smart as I know how to be here. And, but for me, it was the enormity of the, of the problem that we had many customers who wanted to buy our tomatoes. And we had a store that wants to please their customers, but they had something that was significantly cheaper. It had the same label. And yeah. they, they chose to go that way. So that's just a real life story. It is, and it's, it's, I mean, it's awful and it's depressing. Although there are, there are, you know, there are silver linings. The fact that people noticed, I think, is great. Um, the fact that they got upset. I think the store screwed up and they lost an opportunity. Uh, maybe their customers drifted somewhere else. But maybe there's also another lesson that the word organic isn't enough. And again, I'm not going to pretend that everything's better in Europe, but if you think of something like the San Marzano tomato in Italy, where you've got to meet certain conditions... And you can't just someone over in left field who grows it hydroponically can't claim to have the same thing. If you create conditions around that label that can't be broken, then you won't have these imitators coming in and, and literally eating your lunch. Um, <laughs> so that's not to say you did it wrong, um, but that's to say maybe there's, maybe there's clues that we can learn from to, to get it right, to get it better so that you know, we can't get screwed by the big guy. Yeah, that's, that's great. I, I like that, so that they won't eat our lunch. Um, so a couple things I wanted to touch on. I, I, I promised we wouldn't go too long. Um, I wanted to say something out of your book. You said a five-pound chicken in 1948 cost $3. In 2014, that would be $30. But in 2014, a supermarket chicken chicken costs $7. Yeah. So I think that really lays out the thing. It's so hard at this point to do real organic chickens and eggs because the 
The competition under the label is so inexpensive that if you offer a $30 chicken, people will think you're trying to rip them off, mm -hmm. even though that, that might reflect honestly the cost of production and offer them something that has genuine value that you can't get from that $7 chicken. Yeah, and well, the thing I would say though is I think we can do a better chicken cheaper. You know, you know, chickens used to have to be hand plucked. That was very expensive. The good pluckers could do something like eleven chickens an hour, and we we have uh, we have better, more efficient ways of doing that now. So I think we can create that better chicken, and may, it won't be as cheap as a seven dollar chicken. But I also don't think it'll be thirty dollars. And again, I don't know why in food it's always the lowest price is your baseline starting point. Um, it's not like that with anything else. It's, it's, you know, people don't buy the cheapest medicine. Um, <laughs> you don't find the cheapest barber or stylist in town. Uh, but with food, it's always like, if it's not the cheapest, I won't touch it. I, we, we have to stop thinking that way. I'm not saying it should all be really expensive, but clearly quality matters. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, Two more questions. One is, you know, there's a huge debate in the organic world about whether it's a good thing to bring in the big dogs. And right now in the Organic Trade Association, members include General Mills, uh, Smuckers, Purdue, Driscoll's, Danone, Cargill, Hormel, you know, on and on. And, you know, the, the thinking is, well, if we bring in these big dogs, we change them. And, and agriculture improves. But at the same time, what we clearly see is when you bring in these big dogs and they quickly become truly dominant, they change us and they change what that label means. It's a tough process. Do you have any thoughts about it? It's, it's a tough one, like you say. I think, the only thing I'll say is I think there's also, sometimes the little guys aren't good either. Um, one of the things I learned when I did the steak book, um, you know, people think a lot of the big slaughterhouses are terrible, that they commit the gravest ills. And a lot of them are the, some of the best run. Um, you know, Temple Grandin has helped design them. And some of the greatest atrocities that take place is that these little kind of country, um, cute little abattoirs where they have some really backward attitudes about how to treat animals. So that's not to say bigger is always better or little is always better. Uh, again, it's complexity, right? It's not easy. I, th I don't think big is always bad. I don't think big equals bad. Sometimes the big guys really, as you say, they do change us, and that's a problem. But maybe we can make a situation where if they do it the right, if we can make them do it the right way, that will be good. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. And um, I think, you know, big, there's always going to be a limit to what big can do. If you look in France, for example, they have the La Belle Rouge chicken, and that's sort of a big market chicken. They have more than 50% of the whole bird market, you know, it's kind of economic way of talking about food, which I'm not always comfortable with, but they have a big chunk of that market. Um, that's not quite the same as the poulet de Bresse, which is a, a finer, higher quality, more expensive. So there's a role for big, for that kind of big, higher quality chicken in France, but that's not to say they smothered everything and put everyone else out. There's still lots of small breeds in this village or that village um, that make their way to this or that restaurant. So I, I think I think it can be a big tent, and I think there can be an awful lot of diverse, good players in that tent, but you gotta, you got to set the rules right. Yeah, yeah, that is the challenge. Um, and I think that, of course, we want to persuade the big players to do a great job. Of course, that would be ideal. It's just, it's, it's very hard, and often we know it's the label, not the practice that they're interested in. And that's, that's just... Uh, and, he, and how do you police with. it? Because even if you even if you did convince one big player to do it right, even if you convince ninety nine percent of them, all you need is one percent of them to be unscrupulous and go, well, I'm going to break the rules, or I'll uh, I'll get my lawyer to interpret this word differently and and put it in court for ten years or whatever. So I think what we really need to do is change the way we think about it, so that these people are in it to make money. So if you if you put it to them, there's money to be made in doing it the right way. They will do that. They will chase. That, you know, that profit, to put it in those, those cold terms. Yeah, yeah. All right, so I, I, maybe we'll end. Let's, let's talk about the future. Um, you've said the Dorito effect can be reversed. I think that's a bold statement. Let's yeah, I think it's that. true. I think if you look at the work that Harry Klee has done, if you look at the popularity of grass-fed beef, it's not to say it's all good, but it's getting better. 
more and more people are aware of it, um, more or people are looking for it. Um, I think there are real signs of hope. I think I think cheese is a really good story. Craft beer is a great story. Craft beer is 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 eating the lunch of commodity beer. There's more money being made. That's the segment of the market where the gains are being had. And why are people buying craft beer? They're not buying it because it's cheaper. They're not buying it because it has no flavor. They're buying it because it has more flavor. Is that to say all craft beer is great? No, but I think it's a really hopeful sign that we can become different consumers of food and uh, and buy, you know, purchase what, what gives us joy. And maybe it costs a little bit more, but maybe it's better. And maybe we're rewarding you know, the artists behind it to, to produce something that they care about. All right. Mark Schatzker, what's the name of your, of your next book? Have it's, you got still, a title? It's, it's still a secret. You'll be the first to know. Okay, good. Well, I'll be looking for it, for, of course, and I hope everybody else listening will, too. Thank you so much. So thank you. Um, I, I, I so appreciate your work, and I appreciate your writing. Likewise, it's a pleasure and to thank talk. you so much for having me. It's been a, a, a great pleasure to chat. All right. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for listening to The Real Organic Podcast. We hope that you like what you heard today and will subscribe, tell your friends about it, and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you found us. A video version of this interview, as well as the full transcript with links related to today's conversation, is found at realorganicproject.org forward slash episode 14. Please join us next time for an interview with Onika Abraham. She's the executive director of Farm School NYC. To find a real organic farm near you, visit realorganicproject.org forward slash farms.